0: Yeah, this week, I was talking to to Justin over here, man. This week's been, uh, it's just been long. There's been a lot going on, and uh, more than anything, I've just been, the, the mercy of God is continuously, continuously showing up in our lives, and it's wonderful, but um, I told, I, I I believe I told this this last week, man, I had a dream a couple weeks ago, and in this dream, there was a bunch of chaos going on, which, I mean, seems to be typical of our world, right? And, uh in this dream, there's like like there was just a beckoning, a call to my knees that we just had to be on our knees right now. There's got to be an understanding that we got to seek God um, in that holy place. So I just I hope you guys will continue to join me with that today. Um, we're going to be look, taking a look at a couple of things that I think are um, extremely important. The reason why is because and, and we're going to start. We are going to talk about the love of the Father. But to begin with, we're going to start talking a little bit about the Trinity. And the Trinity in and of itself is a really, really difficult thing to understand. I mean, after all, it it defies all logic that we typically use. I mean, how can things be three and also be one at the same time? How can they do that? And that's actually fundamentally where we separate from from the Mormon tradition is that they say that there are three separate gods and not just one god in three persons. And so... Um, As we look at this, the reason I want to dive into specifically these things is because we cannot rightly love God unless we rightly understand God in some fashion. Now, don't get me wrong. It's kind of like husbands. We're never going to fully understand our wives. We try to understand as much as we can about them so we can love them better. See what I'm saying, right? Right? Men don't say anything. that's smart. Um, (laughs) And so we're going to take a look just for a brief moment at the Trinity today um, and then specifically focus on the Father. And And really, here's why. If we are looking at the Trinity and we misunderstand it, then most likely we cannot pray properly and we do not understand salvation properly. Right? So, so there's, you've probably heard of, a, of the Trinity described in a, in a couple of different ways. Um, there's, you've probably heard it put like this, right? So the Trinity can kind of be understand, uh, understood like, like water. Right right it's all h2o but you've got like solid and you've got with with ice you've got like vapor and, and steam and and gas and then you've got you know we, we've heard the three forms of, of water put that way and, and it's a decent idea but in in and of itself it's it's, it's known as a heresy of of uh, modalism that God appears in three different modes instead and, and that they're they're separate from each other, and those things cannot be equal at the same. I'm sorry. It actually ends up being heretical because it, it represents God in a way he does not say. And depending on who you are, you prefer certain forms over. Now, I mean, I don't just like drink steam. I love iced water right? But people will actually separate the way they look at these three pieces and say, well, I prefer the Spirit and the things and the comfort He gives me, but overall the law of God, not so, I don't really enjoy those so much. And so we end up separating these things. It's called the heresy of modalism, okay? Now, the, you may have even heard it put like this, like the, the Trinity can be understood like the sun. Like, there is the sun, but it's also heat, and it's also light, but that's actually the heresy known as Arianism. And it's because what it says is this: something had to happen. One of them- had to exist first, and it produces light, and it produces the Son, as if the Father produced the Spirit, or produced the Son. But what, it, what we forget is that they have always been co-equal, co-eternal for all of eternity, unique in glory and power. Amen? So when we try to understand these things, uh, and here's the third one. The third one is called partialism. Somebody's probably told you, well, the Holy Spirit's kind of like a three-leaf clover right? You've got, like, these pieces, and we understand that they all make up one piece, but in that aspect, they are all, if you look at a three-leaf clover, they are all separate pieces that make up one stem, right? And and these things, fundamentally, are not the same, okay? And and the only way that we, we, if we understand it through church history, I could go through creeds and stuff like that, but ultimately, it's just a big old mess. The best way I've heard it described is, uh, is from C.S. Lewis. A lot of us know C.S. Lewis, the writer of uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, a great writer, um, disciple by J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who was the one who wrote The Lord of the Rings, great writers, atheist men who came to know God and, and wrote great things because of their experience. And what he said is, you cannot, you, you kind of imagine it like a, like a dice. No one has, everybody has a problem imagining three and one, but we know that in order to understand a die, you have to have six separate squares that are all by themselves and they have to be put together to make the same God. But if you take one of those squares away, it's no longer a dice. They are all unique and together all at the same time. And that's still not quite the perfect way to explain it. But in and of itself, it's important that we do our best to understand the Trinity. Why? Because if we're going to be praying, we pray in the name of of the Son by the power of the Spirit to the Father. So if we're not doing these things together, if we're not understanding who they are properly, then prayer becomes really difficult, right? Or it's hard to understand salvation because in salvation we are reconciled back to the Father by the blood of the Son. And then because of those things, the Spirit is given to us as a deposit until we get to heaven where we trade that thing in for glory and live with them co-eternal with us for eternity. So in order to really understand who the Father is, you have to understand a little bit of who the Trinity is. Now, here's, here's the truth. You cannot rightly love God without thinking right thoughts about Him. Okay? For example, if I wrote a love song about my wife over here, about her really beautiful, long, flowing, black hair with tan skin, she probably wouldn't like it very much. Right? She'd be thinking, you're thinking about some other woman. Right? That's what that, I I can't love her rightly unless I think right thoughts about her. G.I. Packer, sorry, J.I. Packer says this. He says, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Because it defines who you are. It defines how you're going to interact in the world. And we talked about this a little bit uh, during the apologetics thing on Wednesday. um, That the way you view God shapes the way you view the world. And the way you view the world shapes how you interact with the world and its people. So we have to, have to, have to do our best and to, to think right thoughts about who God is. And this will help us understand the way that God properly loves us, okay? Now, as we talk about a father in and of itself, the fathership statistics in the United States right now are not good, right? If we think about it, somebody in here, most of us in here, whether it's our father, our grandfather, an uncle, we have all had a situation where a man did not rise up and do what God had made man to do, amen? That's not a good thing, but it is what it is. And so because of that, it's very difficult to correlate a good heavenly father with broken fathers here on the earth. It's hard to make that connection. Let me, let me just go through a couple, of, uh, a couple of things here, right? Because the father in, uh, the father is not... When God describes... Or sorry, when Jesus describes God the father... And when he says he is a father, he's not saying he's like a father. He's not saying, well, you see, God does this, 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 and this, kind of like a dad would do. He says, no, 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 God is. Father. That is a character trait and it is, it is a personality trait of God, which is why he created fathers in the world. If we image God, right, if we are image bearers of God, then men would have that, that characteristic placed into us. We're not describing God like we understand a man. What we need to do is flip that and make men try to measure up to the characteristics of God because that's who he's revealed himself as. And as men, if we're going to rise up and be men of God, we need to try and emulate the things God has done. Amen? All right. We're going to take a look at this here because it's, it's, the Trinity is in both the Old and the New Testament, right? It's right at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So we already have God, the Creator, creates the heavens and the earth. And it says that the Spirit of God was over the waters, and then in John chapter 1, it says that the Word is God and the Word was with God. And then John 1.14 says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know the Word is Jesus. And so we, if we retrospect all the way back, if the Word was with God and the Word is Jesus, then Jesus is there at the creation. So we know that in the Old Testament, there was Trinity. We also know that in the New Testament, there was Trinity. Because we know that in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, it says, Jesus is being baptized, and the heavens open up, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father cries out from heaven, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased, and he gives us this wonderful commandment. He says, listen to him. So we know the Trinity is ancient, it is new, it is modern, it is old, it is there, it is here. Because God is co-eternal, which means he's here too, right? Right? So we have to try and do what we can to wrestle with these things a little bit. Now, as we try to understand the Father, it's probably best to listen to the Son. I would say, because Jesus knows the Father better than any of us. He's the image of the invisible God. He knows God and has made God known to Him, which is why He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? So here's what He says. He said, um, when He tells, teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, how do we start? Our Father. Right? Or... When Paul tells us in Romans 15, he says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a really, really intense emotional connection to God. I mean, some translate it daddy. Some translate it, you know, close, you know, my dad, personal thing, right? And we see that Jesus is always trying to get alone, to get alone with the Father. Here's the problem. If we don't know the Father, we don't know God. And if we correlate all of our cultural misunderstanding of what a father was designed to be all over the world, then it's very difficult to properly understand what God thinks about you. It's really hard to live rightly if you don't know that God loved you first. Because what we try to do, and Pastor Cam says this all the time, it's not about right living that produces right believing. It's right believing that produces right living. Amen? My favorite way I've ever heard this put, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sticking your head in an oven makes you a biscuit. Alright? It's, it's not, it's not outside in, it's inside out. Right? All right. Now, as, as we look into this, I want to look at a few of the statistics on fatherlessness in the United States. And this, this is not a cultural problem. This isn't a racial problem. It is a heart problem in the hearts of men. It spans the entire globe. There are stereotypes of every single culture in the world. But the one thing that is true about most stereotypes is they come around from some kind of statistical fact that then we forget the root of it and it hurts a lot of things. This is is something we have to deal with in the church. Check this out. 19.7 million children in the U.S. are growing up without a father in their home. 19.7 million. That is one in four. One in four children in the U.S. no father in the home. Of those children they have a four, time, four times greater risk to grow up in poverty and, and probably stick in poverty for a good portion of their young adult life. Daughters of these uh, of these no, no father households are seven times more likely to get pregnant as a teenager. These children are likely to have behavioral problems and face abuse and neglect whether it's from the other parents or from the system these children who have children right these these pregnant teens those teens or sorry those children have a two times more likely rate of to to die either in childbirth or some type of infant mortality so the children of these children are very very uh, they're, they're in a lot of trouble honestly these children are more likely to commit uh, are more likely to commit crime and, and receive prison time of some sort they're more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol they're two times more likely to drop out of high school and this is this is an incredible thing because God designed fathers to be in the household, right? He just did. It was his design from the beginning. In the beginning, he created them and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. So, he created a woman to be with him. Now, let's not get this. It was because God is relationship. God in the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, co-eternal for eternity. They loved each other so much in community that they poured out their love onto us and here we came, all right? One of the best ways I've ever heard this put is that this is the only worldview in the entire world, and I've done a lot of studying on this um, that has unity, diversity, and community in its origin. Okay, we can be as a church. It makes sense. We're one of our one of one of our intentions is to be unified in diversity. It makes sense in the scripture because they are unified in the Trinity, but they are also diverse because they're unique. There's three different pieces, and it says God is love. How can God make us in our image, right? That's what Genesis says. It says, let us create man in our image. How can he do that if he's by himself? Who's he talking to? He is unity, or sorry, the, the Trinity is unity, diversity, and community, all in the very beginning of what we believe. So, because of that, when we start talking about what it means to be a father, we should probably listen to what they have to say about it. Now, here's the crazy thing: in 1960, six percent—only six percent—of all households were fatherless. Six percent. By 1980, or sorry, by 1998, it had grown to 24 percent. In 30 years, we lost almost 18 percent of fathers. Now, the, the, statistics, the statistics on that—you would guess—are probably better inside the church than outside, but they're roughly the same. Which means, church, we don't throw the word father away because fathers aren't doing what they're supposed to do. We raise up men in godly standards so that the next generation grows up with fathers. Amen? That means we have a little bit of work to do. But again, to understand that, we have to dive in to what they say about it. So, today we're going to jump into one of the most uh, well-known parables. In fact, if you're brand new to Bible study, you've probably heard of it. And it's the parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Okay? And it's not named very well, honestly. Um, the word prodigal is from the King James Version. And it says, uh, at one point it says, the, the first son wasted his life in prodigal living. Hey, Nima, I told you I was going to, yeah. I was looking for you today because she was like, I want, whenever you talk about the prodigal son, I want to be here. And I was looking around, I was like, well, Nima's not here. Well, there she is, found her. So the, the word prodigal just means to, to spend without restraint. Okay, and so it came from the King James and they named it after that. But really what we'll find is there's not just one prodigal son. There's two rebellious sons and one really lavishing father. Lavishing just meaning to give a bunch. It's kind of ridiculous, honestly. But to properly understand Luke chapter 15, we need to start at the very beginning. So we will start scripturally when we start doing the uh, read-through in verse 11 there. But I'm going to go back to the beginning real quick so we can get an understanding. It says this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. We're going to stop right there. Because if we grew up in the church, the phrasing tax collectors and sinners just doesn't hit us right. It's not like, oh, they work for the IRS. They take money from us all the time, so we really don't like them. That's That's not what this is. The tax collectors in this day were those who took from the Hebrew people, they took their money to fund the terrorism of Rome against the Hebrew people. So these are people that were stealing from their own people to fund terrorism. These were, and so they literally separate out, a, as a category of sin, they separate out the tax collectors and they put them at the lowest of the low because they were traitors, right? And then it says this, it says the tax collectors and sinners. Now, this isn't like, oh, and the rest of us. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner, no big deal, let's all go out. No, this isn't like a, this is a category of sin as well. And this category is mostly of sexual sin. So these are probably the prostitutes, uh, those who worked in the brothels, those kinds of workers. It separates them out intentionally because that's what religious people tend to do. We'll talk about this a lot today. And most of us probably don't think we're all that religious because we go to the 316 and we're about, not about religion or tradition. But the fact of the matter is the longer you're in church, the harder you have to work at not being overly religious because we tend to get into our comfortable places. I'm sorry, this thing's not staying at all. So that's where, that's where we begin. Now, check this out. It says, they were, these, the worst of the worst in society were all drawing near to him. Now, who's him? It's Jesus, right? Check this out, church. In the first century, people who look nothing like Jesus really, really like Jesus. Here's a test. Do people who look nothing like Jesus really, really like us right now? Not so much, which means we might be missing the heart of the Father. Now, I'm not saying that we, that we don't stand up for truth, but what is truth? Truth without grace, which is why, again, we are a place of grace and truth, mentioned after who Jesus is. Truth without grace cannot be loving, and grace without truth is, is a lie. So we have to find that middle ground that's both. People that look nothing like Jesus really, really liked Jesus. If they do not think the same things of us, and I'm not talking about conforming to the patterns of this world that they would think that we're, you know, that we're, we're still a separate priesthood. But the fact of the matter is, is that they love Jesus because society didn't love them, but Jesus really, really loved them, which is ultimately why society stopped loving Jesus. Because of the way that he loved people so radically. And I think the reason society doesn't really like Christians right now is because we ostracize and keep it at an arm's distance. And we put a wall up and say, no, 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 we're a separate priesthood. Yeah, but separate doesn't mean much if it's not doing what priests do. We got we to be about the Father's business. So let's, let's find out a little bit about who the Father is. Now, the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious people at this point, right? The Pharisees are the teachers of the law. The Pharisees are those that know the law frontwards and backwards. And these people, when I'm talking about this, if you're in your heart a little bit, you're wrestling with it, and you're like, yeah, I don't know if it's true, then you're probably grumbling just like the, just like the Pharisees were. Because Jesus is controversial. Now, the other thing about this is, I as we go through this today, I really hope there's conviction because conviction is a wonderful gift. But I can't bring it. So, if there's conviction today over anything, I'll all, I do my best to always remind people if there's something that is convicting, praise God, He's working on you. Amen. So that's where we're starting. And so as they're uh, as they're grumbling, he he. It says this. Look, this man receives sinners in eats with them. There are so many people in society right now that depending on what side of the aisle that we're on or what faith they have or what their sexual orientation is or these things, the church is like, I'm not going to eat with these people at all. It just is what, I mean, we put in categories of sin so that we keep people separate separate from where we are. We are, we got to be real careful, church. Like I said, the longer you're in church, the easier it is to become religious. Why? It's because it's so easy to forget what it is that we were saved from. Which is why those of us who grow up in the church, some of us, I'm telling you, I grew up in the church. There was a long time I was really good at being like, I'm not that bad. Just look at that guy over there. Wow. You know, Jesus, can you save him? And he's like, well, I saved you. I'm like, yeah, but I'm fine. I'm, you know, I didn't do that much. And then you realize, you get a little older and you go, oh my goodness, I was messed up as a teenager. <laughs> right? Like, I did some things that, mom, if you're watching, I'm not talking about, didn't happen. So, um, those types of things, right? And so, we've got to be really, really careful and intentional to stay away from that, from that religious nature that wants to rise up inside of us, okay? And so, as, as they're grumbling, he begins to hear what they're saying about e- eating with tax collectors and sinners. So, we, he, tell, he tells three parables back to back to back. The first one is the parable of the lost sheep. And now most of us know that we, Corey Asbury wrote a song about it, about the reckless love of God. He leaves the 99, goes after the one, right? And says, which of you who has a, a hundred sheep, if he loses one sheep, doesn't leave the 99 to go after the one? And then when he finds it, he puts him around his neck and carries him back, which that's an intimate place, right? When you're this close, that, that's a big deal. How many of you don't tell all of your friends and celebrate because the one that was lost was found? right? And the second one is the parable of the lost coin. It's about a woman who has 10 coins that are silver coins, which at that point is a lot of money, right? And she takes, she loses one. When you lose something of value, she says she turns over her whole house. She turns, she looks everywhere. She flips her house upside down. And when she finds that one thing of value, she tells everybody and she celebrates about that thing, all right? Which, by the way, is why around here we tend to celebrate salvations, right? Because when people come to know Christ, it's the greatest thing in the world. So to me, I would much rather celebrate that than the fact that the Broncos are no longer playing today. Um, yeah, anyway, it, it hurts. It hurts. All right. So that's where we're picking up. And he moves into this, into, this, uh, into this third parable. And the thing we need to understand, most of us, do we know the par- parable of the prodigal son fairly well? And here we understand the gist of it, Right? Um, in the first century, everybody knew this story. Everybody understood there was a story very similar to this, and according to the two laws given in Exodus and Deuteronomy, everything that happens in here is going exactly how people expect it to go until there's a little flip. All right. So if you can throw up uh, the the first cha- uh, the first verse there in, in verse eleven, here's what it says. And this is the, right at the beginning of the parable. He says, And there was a man who had two sons. Now, right at the beginning, why, if there's two sons, why is, that, why is it called the prodigal son? Because it says right at the beginning. No, there's two of them. Right? This is one of the reasons why if I'm ever put on a Bible council, I will change the name of this because I just don't think it's right. Anyway. Um, and by the way, I, I, it, it, for those of us who are newer to this... Um, Jesus did not name this, it was people, and so I'm not like, oh, change scripture, let's be careful with that I would not do that, um, but that's where we're at. It says, there's a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, and this, this is what happens, the father divides the property between them. Now, I don't know about you, but when do we normally get our inheritance? It's when our parents die, right? Now, I also don't know about the way you were raised, but if I came up to Dad and said, "Yo, Dad, you're dead to me. Give me what's coming to me." He, Man, take this belt. I'll give you what's coming to you. <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not going well, right? Um, and, and that's, but, but this father in the story doesn't start that way. Now we do need to understand as well that when the father is separating his, uh, his inheritance, the younger son would have gotten in this culture one-third of the inheritance, and the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance, just the way the culture was. And so the younger son, what he would have had to do is he would have had to sell off parts of his property. It probably would have taken a couple of weeks. The father really would have had to work to give the son what he had asked for. Right? Now, here's the incredible thing to me. Here, here, here's what it says. It says in verse 13, if you'd flopped out there. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, all the things that his father had given him, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. That's the portion where it says he squandered his property, and King James says, in prodigal living. Okay? And prodigal simply means, of course, work, doing things without any form of restraint. Now, here's what's incredible to me. God knows, right, the story's about the father. The father knows exactly what his son is about to do, and he allows it, and even funds it. Now, this, this is what's crazy to me. The father knows what the son is about to do. Why, if God is this loving God, would he allow the son to go do all these crazy things? It might even hurt other people in the process. And it's simply this. How can the, God, how can the son know the love of the father unless he's given the choice not to love the father? And so the Father all the time in our lives, man, it's real easy for me to jump into rebellion. The, th- the crazy thing about sin, and they'll tell you this at all the different camps growing up, sin, they'll be, ah, sin's not fun at all. Look, you're not doing it right. I'm telling you, sin, sin is, the funny thing about temptation, it's tempting. Right? The crazy thing about sin, though, is that it always seems fun if you take it in snapshots. Look, Look, here's my, here's my bachelorette party. Here's, here's pictures of us in Vegas. Here, But what it doesn't show is the damage of a long journey all the way down the line of lots and lots of little snapshots that eventually tell a much larger story. The thing about sin is it always seems fun at first. And here's the truth. Anybody in here or anybody who knows anybody in here who has struggled with alcoholism and it ended up destroying different parts of your life, maybe you lost a job, maybe it hurt your kids, it did not start you, you didn't wake up one morning and go, yeah, I just want to hurt a bunch of people. You, you woke up, and, and maybe you went to a party and thought, I'm just going to have a couple of drinks. And next thing you know, it, there, there's a bunch of spirals that come. This process draws out, and now people are hurt because of it. Or, or for those of us who have, who have you know, been around people who have been in, in adulterous relationships, it didn't start one morning waking up, and they went, you know what? I think I'm just going to go out and, and, and destroy my family. It didn't happen that way. They will, they, it was most likely there was a flirtatious comment at work when they were flirting with someone who wasn't their spouse, and so there was more and more and more just edging towards it and all. the Next thing you know, you make one decision, but it wasn't one decision, was it? It was many, 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 many decisions that were of small steps until you jumped off the diving board. Financially, same thing, Right? Financially, is the same thing. For those of us who are upside down in credit card debt all around the country, it didn't start because they're like, you know what? I have, I have a credit score of 3.6. I'm going to buy a Lamborghini, and the interest rate's going to be through the roof. But that's okay. I've got $10 in my pocket. It doesn't happen that way, right? It's always, you know what? I got paid a little extra this month. And instead of putting that away, more is mine. I'm going to go spend that extra on me. And the next month, like, well, I'm still kind of at a zero balance, but now I'm going to spend a little more and see what... And the next thing you know, man, you're in in so much debt, you don't know what to do with it. You know what they call that? Student loans. Amen. So, So, my point is that sin always, always, always sounds fun until the hook hits it at the end, right? It says this. When he had spent everything... The son did that. He, he, it was a couple of steps. It didn't say this is a couple of weeks. The son is probably gone for a couple of years. The father is very, very wealthy. And you know what? There was a, there was a movie growing up about, um, it was a Brewster's Millions or something like that, where he receives $300 million, but he only has a week to spend it all and he can't do it. Look, I'm sure there's some of us in here that could really try to spend a lot of money really, really fast. Okay? But this is probably a couple of years down the line. It's a lot of money to spend. And says that when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and the son began to be in need. Go to the next verse, please. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in the field to feed the pigs. Now, to us, again, because we're Americans and we're not under the old law, the same way that we are under. The, the, the covenant of the new covenant, right, in the New Testament, this doesn't hit us quite as hard as it would because for an Orthodox Jewish boy, there was nothing worse than feeding pigs. You couldn't touch a pig. You couldn't look at a pig. You couldn't think about a pig. It was this nasty creature. They're still nasty creatures, but bacon's delicious. I'm sorry. Um, but but you, couldn't, you couldn't do this. This was the lowest of the low. This is, this is the lowest possible point in this young man's life. He couldn't touch his family. He couldn't go to temple anymore. He was in, he was ostracized and outcast from all of society. And it says, when all of this was going downhill, eventually there is going to be a rock bottom. Some of us are thinking, man, could he really get any worse? Yes, it can always get worse. We've we've seen that in the movies, right? Man, today sucks. I wrecked my car. Could it get any worse? Rain, you know. It just don't ever ask that question. Just that one's free. Anyway, it says, and he. This is the crazy part. He longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Listen to this. No one gave him anything. Here's the truth about God. He's not a helicopter dad. If you are living in this ridiculous, rebellious sin like he is, he'll allow you to do what you want to do, but he's not going to say it's okay, and he's not going to fund that. He'll say, you know what? Sometimes the, the wrath of God is not the fire and brimstone. It's not the destruction of cities. The, the wrath of God is to say, okay, hands off, do what you want. But it's the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that allows us to hit rock bottom. Why? Because often when we fall flat on our back, that's the time when we can look straight up and realize who it is that we really need. When you're sitting in that low point, that is the, the only place up from that place is, is the Father. Right? Now, here's the truth. It's really easy to find someone who's in this situation, and obviously no one's actually eating pig slop really in this day and age, but it might be the person who's caught in some kind of trafficking. It's the person whose drug decisions have let, like we, we, we know the people who've had really, really broken lives. That person, it's easy to say, but there's hope in his name is Jesus. It's much easier for that person to be saved. Why? Because when you're sitting in the pit and you're like, I have nowhere to go, I'm like, how about the Lord? And he's like, I'll take him right? But it's really, really hard for church people to be saved because we don't realize that we're real messed up too, right? If we can go to the next portion there. And here's the key. This is repentance, okay? Repentance is a big word. Really just means turn around, go the other way, all right? Literally, I mean, if I'm going this way and I'm walking towards something that's not good, and then I go, you know what? I shouldn't be going this way. I'm going to turn back and head towards God 180 degrees. That is all repentance is. And this is the crazy part. A lot of us, you know, there was actually a peer-reviewed article that came out not too long ago. It was within the year. There's a pastor that I I know that had read it. And he said that according to this article, 50% of American Christians still believe that your good works have something to do with your salvation. 50% 50% of us still believe that somehow if we work harder, do better, try and, and, and hold on longer, that somehow that's going to have merit for us and we're going to be saved by that. It ain't how it works. You trying harder will ultimately do nothing. It's called self-righteousness, right? And in the Greek, Paul is not happy about it. Okay, I, he, he calls it animal feces in a slang term. Okay, can we get a little, like, he's not, he's not shy. He's like, yeah, when the Lord looks at that, it's called scubulon, uh uh-uh. uh. When, when we try to get right with God by our own terms, He's like, yeah, that's animal dung laying on the ground that stinks to high heaven. The Lord doesn't like it. Okay? But He comes to His senses. Right? Actually, so this is the ESV. The, the NIV literally says, so my version says, when He came to Himself, the, the NIV literally says, when He came to His senses. Okay? And it says, he, how many of my Father's servants. Have more than enough bread, but I but I, I perish here with hunger. And here's where he starts to think: I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Have, have any of us really been in that situation growing up, where we've been in so much trouble, and we know, like we know, you you get a call, you're at a friend's house, and uh, you're you know you guys get in trouble. They call your parents, and you're on your way home, and you're sitting here preparing your apology already, right? And and you know, what always works with uh, with parents, children. Don't say I didn't do anything for you. If you throw a little bit of God in, you know, parents tend to be a little more. Elite. No, it doesn't work that way either. <laughs> but that's what he does. He says, "Look, if I maybe I can just like tone this down." Father, I've sinned against heaven, and against you. But I'll linger on the heaven part a little bit. <laughs> no, we've we've all been in this place, right? We've all done something that we messed up, and we're like, you know what? I should probably prepare. To say, I'm sorry. And that's what, this little, that's what this boy is doing. And he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, please. It says, and he arose and came to his father. Now here's, the, the father ends up doing five things here. We need to, this, remember, this entire story is not about the son. It's named the prodigal son, so we focus on the son and all the things he's done. But ultimately, this is not even a little bit about the son. The one thing we need to realize about the very beginning of the story, when he receives his inheritance and he gives things to both the older and the younger son, ultimately, everything that they have, still I need you to see this, it still belongs to the father. The one-third given to the younger son, still the father's. The two-thirds given to the older son, still the father's. Sometimes we're sitting here thinking, man, look at all the things I've done. Look at all the success I've had. And we measure it by these things. Do you realize that the things that you've done still don't belong to us? We, we have nothing but that which the Father has blessed us with. Which is why, and this is not necess- we have the wrong mindset sometimes because of this. When we give back to the Father, whether it be worship or work or tithe, as if the Father needs something from you. But when my daughter comes up to me and says, here, dad, I drew you a picture, and it's a stick figure, I'm not sitting here going, man, I'm so glad you did something for me. I just love it because it's my kid. Right? I just love it because it's my daughter who made this for me. I didn't need a picture of a stick figure elephant, but it's on the fridge. All right? And look, I've seen some of y'all's kids' drawings not nearly as good as my kids' stick figures. All right? But that's how we do it, right? If it's my kid, it's the best. That's where the father is at to begin this story. Now here's what the father does, right? You see, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, stop right there. This means the king, the father, was sitting there scanning the horizon looking for him. This little boy had dishonored his father, said, Father, you're dead to me. And this is years down the line. He's in a far-off land where this famine is happening. There's a good chance the father doesn't even, like it, the, the famine has not affected the father's land. He's not looking because he knows, there's this famine and I know where my son's at. He has no clue where his son's at. But parents, it's just true. My, It's just true. If, you, if, you're, if you've got your kids living some kind of crazy life at any point, whether it's in high school, I mean, you can know where your kids are in high school and you're sitting up there you'd like... Look, I told him 1059, or I told him 11, it's 1059. Look, where are you? Right? You you, you can know all the circumstances around it. You're still looking for your kid. This father has no clue. And he's still looking for his kid. He's hoping, man, if my son would just come home. Now, here's the crazy part the father saw him and he felt. Hear that. He felt. A lot of this, look, a lot of it is right, about right doctrine. That's why we talked about the Trinity. It is important to study. It is important to think. It is important to know things. But do you know that the Father has emotions towards you? The word here, when it says he felt compassion, when it says he felt compassion, it's, it's a really, it, it, the Greek word is splagnitsomai okay? Splegnitzomai. It literally sounds like it means from the gut, and it sounds like it's from the gut. Like, it's really easy to make that comparison. Splegnitzomai, right? And it, he felt, this word compassion here means when the Father looks at us in the middle of our sin, he doesn't feel shamed of who we are. He feels this compassion in his stomach, in the core of his being, and he has to move because of it. Let me ask you something, church. When you're confronted with sin, not yours, somebody else's, do you feel compassion or anger? Now, I I mean any sin. I'm not talking about, oh man, that's really unfortunate. They had a bad day and, you know what, they said something they shouldn't have and now they're in trouble. I'm talking this person is involved in the worst of the worst. Because if you don't have a heart of compassion towards the person who's hurting, you do not have the heart of the Father. The heart of the Father feels compassion towards you and me. And this is the crazy thing. When we encounter the Father, we're always like, Father, I've been man so messed up. What's you just, I don't want your judgment. I just want your love. Would you help me? And then we're like, but him over there, he, uh, he stole seven, you know, he stole seven cars and ran over six people and people are dead because of him. And then we forget about Luke chapter five, which says, if you've thought about your neighbor in anger, you're already a murderer. We forget and we place these hierarchies of sin on people. And so because of that, we forget that, look, me as a man, I'm a lying, thieving, adulterer at heart. That's what Matthew five says. If, and it levels the playing field. I'm as bad as the next guy. Church, especially the ones that grew up in it, we forget how messed up we are. Which is why it's so easy to step into religion. Right? It says, he saw, number one, remember the father did five things. He was looking for him, and he felt compassion for him. And this next part is the craziest part. Right? It says, he ran. Now, in the first century, men didn't run. They just didn't, which is why I don't do track. I'm trying to be holy. So, um, (laughs) men didn't run. It just didn't happen. In order for a rich man to run, they wore these really big robes that, that uh, showed status and how rich they are. Like, they would have to lift up this robe and, like, show their thigh. It wasn't okay in the first century. And I will add, is still not okay today, man. <laughs> Check yourself in your short shorts. <laughs> right? So he felt compassion. And he ran to him. He, lifted, he embarrassed himself. He runs to him, and check this next part out. So, saw, felt, ran, embraced. Now, here's the key. It it says, he arose and came to his father. It didn't say he got up, he went to a holiday and washed the pig slop off himself, got to look like a million bucks, spent what little fortune he had left, and got himself a suit and came back. It says he got up, covered in pig slop, and left. So, when the father runs to him, he is still covered in pig filth, which, again, by the way, Jewish people are not allowed to think about, smell, touch, be around, didn't happen. But the father of the universe disregards all law in that moment and says, no, this is my child, he's home. Yeah. And he runs to him and embraces him. Now, there's two reasons I think he embraces him. One, I think it's because if you're a good dad and your boy's been gone for a while, you just hug your boys. Men, hug your kids. Hug them. One of the, I, I always say that there's four men who helped shape my life. One of them was a youth pastor, wonderful man. Um, I'll tell a story about him later, but his name was Randy, and he really taught me what it was to love people. I mean, youth groups of three and 500 all over the country. Incredible man, 2,000 people. He preached his own funeral, and 2,000 people came at an altar call. It was in, just The man was anointed, right? He actually told the VA that he had cancer because God had told him that he had cancer before they told him he had cancer. It's incredible. The man was just, he, he was awesome. And then... Um, Dr. Dr. Robert Davis, he was my martial arts instructor, taught me humility, put me on my back a bunch, right? And then, you've got my dad and my grandfather. Now, my grandfather was a hard man. He was a farmer, um, grew up in Nebraska. Um, my dad told me that that he did not hear the words, I love you, from his father until he was in his mid-50s. It was just assumed. You just know, right? In the last 15 years of his life, I saw the gospel hit my grandfather. He grew up in the church. He was an usher. Door eight, you'd see him there every day, Right? But the gospel, sometimes as men, it's not fun to be emotional. Jesus cried, but I ain't going to. It ain't going to happen. You know? Jesus is talking about embracing their sons, but I'm not going to. He should just know. He's a man. No. My my grandfather, by the end of his life, man, we walk in, he kisses on the top of the head. Daddy's kiss your boys. I'm telling you, it'll change things. If you can show emotion to your sons, even if they're, you know, even if they're 14, 15, they're awesome. Just go get them anyway. It'll change some things. Show your boys that you can love them. That way, when they're growing up, they don't become a statistic of the fatherlessness because of the misrepresentation of our fatherhood versus the other. The other reason is because a good servant in this day... Remember I told you at the beginning this was a well-known story? The story went like this in the first century. If a father should be dishonored by the son. The son leaves and the son comes back, stun the son to death. That was what the law says in the Bible, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. So here's what a good servant would have done. A good servant would have had, would have seen the son coming, goes, he's coming back, he's coming back. And they would have rushed, gathered with rocks, and they would have been ready to kill the boy. So the father runs to him and he embraces him so you can't see where the father begins and the son ends, because no one's going to throw a rock and hit dad. So that maybe, maybe, just maybe, if someone took a, took a rock and threw it, the, son, the father would take the beating instead of what the son deserved. Sounds a little bit like the cross of Jesus Christ, right? This, we, we can't forget that the heart of the father is always, always, always for the rebellious son. No matter what they've done or who they are. And the fifth one, he kissed him. Said it already, he, he's covered in pig slop. And he just kisses his boy. Because it's what any good dad does. His son is gone. He didn't wait for him to clean himself up. And here's the crazy part, right? And it says, the son begins his prepared speech. It says this, and the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, remember, he practiced this. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the the father stops him right there. He's like, look, you're not earning your way back into this. You couldn't do it anyway. I had a lot of money. You squandered it all. It took years to squander. It's going to take even longer to fit. You can't earn your way back to this. You can't. He says, but the father just stops it said to his servants, he stops it. You can't earn your way into this. It doesn't work. Effort's not going to make you more holy. Surrender is going to make you more holy. Okay? It says, but the father said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe. The best robe would have belonged to the father. The best robe would have been, this is what, this, he puts the the robe around him. This is a picture of what's called imputed righteousness. Not imparted. Imparted righteousness means somehow I've earned some of what I deserve. This is imputed, which means the, life, uh, the, the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ counts for me even in the middle of my pig slop. So he wraps the robe around him, and this is why. Because no one's going to no see the son's filth anymore. They're going to see the cleanliness of the father. Sometimes we forget when we're in the middle of our own mess, all we can see, because we can smell ourselves, right? Right? We, we can smell when there's a little stink going on in our lives, but we forget that we're wearing the robe of the Father. We forget. And now, Paul would tell us that Jesus died on the cross to make us two things, holy and blameless. So that becomes the response to the world. And people ask you, who, how are you doing? Holy and blameless. Now, it sounds cocky, except you know it's not your robe. You know it's not your robe. We forget that the robe doesn't belong to us in the first place, and then we forget what's under it sometimes. And that's why that's why we tend to look at the world with a little bit of a magnifying glass. And we condemn the world when, Je- when Paul says, if Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, why are we condemning the world? Right? John 3.16. We love it. He came into the world and died and saved. it. It's the gospel one verse. And then John 3.17. For he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Can't forget that. And then he says this. He, he, put, he gives him three things. He gives him the robe and he gives him the ring. Now, a ring was a sign of identity. Son, you know, servants didn't get rings. Only sons got rings, right? He gives them identity back. Have you ever, I mean, this is like, have you ever seen like Braveheart, right? Or one of those old school movies, and they like roll up the scroll, and the, the king puts a seal like in the, in the wax. This is him saying, look, you have so much identity, you are now not just a son, you have the authority to write checks. You have the authority to, commit, to give commands. He didn't earn any of this. He gives him his identity and he gives him authority right away. Some of us don't know how to walk in authority over our own lives because we don't realize our sonship because we don't know who the father is. It says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He, he gets rid of that with the robe, puts the ring on him, which gives him sonship, and then he gives him sandals, which oh, servants ran around barefoot. Only sons got sandals. All of these things were to say, no, you're my son. No, you're my son. No, you're my son. Remember what happened to Peter? He denied him three times. He said, no, I don't know him. No, I don't know Jesus. No, I don't know Jesus. And then they, later on, when when Peter comes back, when Jesus is resurrected, and he meets him by the fire, he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? There's something about the number three in, in the Greek and Hebrew. You should look it up. It's good. Okay? And then he brings the fattened calf to kill it, and he said, let us eat and celebrate. Now, here's the truth. I tried, Matt, I tried, I tried, I tried to come up with something celebratory. Um, I will go ahead and segue this into the... Uh, into the discussions we've had on Wednesdays. We, like, the vandal did a great job with the health class. Turns out red meat's not great for you. But look, we can celebrate better after the, after, after the death of Christ than they could before the death of Christ. Like, this right here, here's what they're cooking. I can almost guarantee it. They're cooking bacon wrapped filet mignon. And it's, it's probably medium rare. <laughs> right? Because before the, before the covenant, or in the old covenant, before the fattened calf was sacrificed in Jesus, you couldn't have the bacon, you couldn't have the blood. But afterwards, when that's it, like, this is some gospel meat. You wrap that thing in bacon and don't cook it too much. That's the rule now, okay? So, like, there are some celebratory things going on. Now, I, I tried to, to, like, I just love steak. I'm sorry. It's so hard. I want to be healthy, but, I mean, Jesus said, no. Um, you know, my mom makes some wonderful, like, uh, dessert sweet potatoes. They're really yummy, but we use butter. So I'm even in that. I'm like, I don't know how to make Like, I just, I'd have to fix this stuff. Okay? I tried. I really did. It's, I've tried, yeah, no, we're we're moving on. Anyway, (laughs) so he says, bring the fat and calf. Now, if we can move to the next part, this is where it gets crazy, okay? This, he says, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We are not mistakers in need of a life coach. We are sinners in need of a savior. You're not bad in getting better. You are dead and God makes you alive. That's what the scripture tells us. Verse 25, please. Now, this is the crazy part. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. This is a really good party. Okay? Like, you can hear music, but how do you hear dancing? Like, these people are getting after it. Look, if you grew up Baptist, this is proof. God is not against dancing. I grew up Nazarene. It wasn't allowed. I'm like, David danced naked before the Lord, but we're not allowed. What? You know? So, that's just, it's weird. That's, again, that's what religion does. and says, he heard music and dancing, and this, he, he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Here's the truth about religious people. We don't want to go straight to the Father. We want to find someone else to do what we need for us. It's an authoritarian thing. We think, we start to think, man, we're up here, instead of realizing when the veil fell, you get to crawl up in your dad's lap, he's the king of the universe, and go, all right, what's going on today? But he did, fundamentally, right at the beginning, you get to realize he does not understand that there is relationship with the Father. It says, and he said to him, or he asked what these things meant. And the Father, I think we actually missed something there. Right, so one of the servants says, your brothers come home, and your father's killed a fattened calf for him, because he has received him back safe and sound. And this is what else is true, like religious people's feathers get ruffled when grace transforms lives. Okay, because he received him back safe and sound, the brother was angry, and he refused to go in. There are some people, if we're being honest, we don't even want to be saved. I'm going to say four, like if you've got kids, cover, cover their ears, because it could be considered a curse word in some cultures, okay? Biden, Pence, Trump, Harris. Those things are so controversial in our generation. Everybody's yelling about them, and we, we, we can't even get on the same page about people in the church. Do you want, let's put it this way, I don't care what your position is on any of these people, do you want them saved or not? Do you pray that, that they would be successful, or do you pray that they'll be saved? Do you pray that they would be unsuccessful, or do you pray that the Father would encounter them and they would get to know the love of the Father? They're, they're, it's ridiculous how many of us are so polarized against each other in the church because of views that other people have. We agree with their views, but our view of them should be the view of the Father. We, we, we need to want these people saved instead of... And that's what's causing division in the church. We, it's so easy to see that... I mean, honestly, there's so many people out there that we, if we saw them saved, we'd question it first, right? When Justin Bieber had his change, Kanye. These things happened recently, right? And what was the first initial reaction? Well, I hope it's true, but I doubt it. Are we serious? Because pe- the, the, the servants didn't want the, the younger brother to be saved. They were expecting an execution, Do we want people who do not know the Lord or who we suspect don't know the Lord, do we want them saved or do do we want them exposed? Because the truth is, is that if God took off your robe and exposed you, you'd be looking for mercy and not for justice. But he was angry. And check this part out. The same thing that the father did for the older boy, he does for the younger he, or for the younger boy he does for the older for the, see, the, the thing is is one of these boys was lost in, in his rebellion the other one was lost in his religion they're both lost sons and his father does the same thing for the rebellious boy that he does for the religious one he comes out and he intri- that word entreat right there means he begs him this is the this is the most convicting part for me right? Like, has anybody ever been at a family dinner and, like, someone makes somebody else mad and then there's someone in the bedroom upstairs and dinner's all awkward and you're sitting there. Um, do we eat? Do we wait? Someone's going to go fix that? And who is it that always asks? It's always dad. Dad, go get whoever from, or grandpa, go get whoever it is from the room. Like, I'm not coming out. And then they start, yeah, is it just me? Has it ever happened to anybody else? Right? And the father comes out and begs him. And here's the key. Knowing the anger that, his young, that the younger son has, the father Begs because my if that happened in my situation, my face would say it before I said anything. If you don't get in there, right? How are our kids going to know that God's not angry with them if we're always angry with them? My daughter's been a test the last couple weeks. She's three. It's gonna happen. Wait till she's thirteen. I know y'all with wisdom. You know. But how is my daughter going to know who God, that God loves her if I am always angry with her? The father comes out and he begs, and he looks at him and he's like, let's go to verse 29 here. He says, but he answers, Father, look, these many years I have served you, I've never disobeyed a command. He thinks that God is a commander. He doesn't realize that he is the Father. Here's the truth. When God is a commander, you follow commands and you, when you're done being followed, you, you leave the military. That's what happens. You retire. But sons don't clock in, sons don't clock out. Sons work for the Father not because they have to work on command but because they love the Father and understand that they are not entitled to what the Father has. It was a free gift. And we are always on the swing pendulum between entitlement and gratitude. One of them lost gratitude. The other one chose entitlement. Both of these sons are really lost in the same thing. They do not know the father. He said, you would never even give me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But, and and notice this, when this son of yours came home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, check this out. At the beginning, it didn't say he did anything with prostitutes. He said with wild living. Here's what religious people do. Religious people always take the sin that they've never been involved in, they put it on somebody else, say, look how bad they are. It doesn't say that he devoured his property with prostitutes. You might infer it if you want to, but it doesn't say so. Religious people are really, really good at making some, some sin that I've never been involved with. That's probably what they're involved with. God, how could you save them? We have to be careful. We cannot forget what, the, what, what it is that we've been saved from. And you killed the and calf for him. 31, please. And he said to him, this This is the most incredible word in this story. He said to him, son. This word son in the Greek, it's translated son, but it's actually a different word altogether um, than, than the, the translations for son previous to this text. The word is, is technon, and what it means is my little boy. And I don't think it's like, It says little boy, but I don't think it means, like, little boy, like, you get over it. Like, like we've done things like that, too. But it literally means my little one. You're always with me. I remember bringing you home from the hospital. I remember all your baseball and basketball games. I remember when you got your scraped knees, and I patched those things up. My little boy, we brought you home, and now you're a million miles away. You're right next to me, but you're probably farther off than than the prodigal son was. You've always had me. But you've missed out so much you don't even understand that I just wanted you. I wanted relationship with you from the moment I brought you home. And you chose inheritance. And then the next part. And all that is mine is yours. God is relationship first, blessings second. You were always with me and after that comes the stuff. Problem is, in the United States, we want all the stuff without all the relationship because if we get entangled in a relationship, that means I have to commit to God. And I if I commit to God, well, then I'm not my own person anymore. Now, I have to be obedient to what the Scripture says, but really I'd like to wiggle this around a little bit so that, I mean, what's good is what I want to be good, right? That can't be that bad. No... It, if, if scripture says, then that's, that's what God says, period. We don't get to move that around. But we, we change it because we don't want to be fit in with the rules of the Father. How do you think the Father became this successful in the first place? Ask Justin. There's a set of rules you have to follow for, for financial success. You don't just get to walk in and say, yeah, I want to be financially successful, but don't want to do any of the things that it requires to be financially successful. But we have to be careful with that as well, right? Because then we start to think, well, maybe I do have some merit to bring to the table like the first son. Always remember, it's not your robe. He says this, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother. He gives the identity back that the son didn't didn't even want. He says, no, no, no. That person over there that's that messed up, God is looking at us right now going, the person that you really don't like could be family if you just loved him enough. What is the point of all of this? If the person who's messed up the most doesn't deserve Jesus, And you do? As if we deserve the Lord? As if we deserve his perfect sacrifice on the cross? Go watch the videos, man. Being struck 39 times with a cat of nine tails. Ripped apart. Go study crucifixion. He did it for you. And he did it for them. We want his mercy. But we want others to be judged. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Do not be the second son in this polarized generation, church. Get back into connection with the Spirit, with who God is, with the Father. Understand the love he has for you. Then, if we understand the love he has for you, we will understand the love he has for others. And I guarantee you, you cannot simultaneously look up at the Father, say, God, thank you so much, and look down your nose at other people. It is not possible. I have tried. Let him do his work. Pray for those who need it. Church, it's time we get back to what is the Father's business. If we're worried about everything else going on around us and we've said political names more than we've said the name of Jesus recently, we might be concerned too much with the wrong kingdom. Kingdom first. And invite everybody else in because it's a big party. There's steak. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the fact that in the middle of my messed up, it tells us in Romans that while we were yet still in rebellion in the middle of our sin, while we were yet still sinners, that's when Christ died for me. God, sometimes I am so good at forgetting that that is, it was when I was in the most messed up portions of my life that you died for me. Don't let me be comparative. Don't let me talk about all the things that somebody else is doing. Continue to convict me over those things. Let the prayer of this church be as we look at Scripture that Scripture is not a magnifying glass for others. It's a reflective mirror. God, make me like you. Help me to love people like you. Help me to want people to be like you, even if they don't look like you, because they loved you in the first century. Father, teach us, mold us, convict us, and do it in in the only way that, that you can, which is out of love for your kids. Whatever it takes, God strip things away, add things to us, but help us to be what you've made us to be. And that is your bride. Revelations tells us this, that the bride of Christ will make herself ready for the bridegroom. I don't know if it's Eastern thought in religion, that, in Christianity that leads to all the miraculous stories we've seen or the, the relaxed, creative side of the West that allows us to write beautiful music. I don't know if it's racial where north, south, east, and west, all the different creative people in the world, those who were created in God's one image with many different colors of skin. I don't know if it's all of that coming together, and that's what makes the bride of Christ ready. Whatever it is, though, God, all I know is whatever it is, I want that. God, teach us to be who you are to the older and the younger son, that they may become part of the family. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray.